when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Hey guys, Sari Delamont here. This is a recent Facebook Live that we've uploaded as a podcast. Enjoy. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to our first week of summer. No, I guess it was, well, yeah, it started on Friday, last Friday. We are in summer officially. You wouldn't necessarily know that uh, here in Portland. Uh, We always call it June gloom. It's a little sunny out today, but mostly cloudy all week. We always say that summer in Portland starts on the 5th of July. So we'll see if that holds true. So welcome everyone to this uh, Facebook Live. We're going to be talking about, I've just been putting the finishing touches on my final edit for the book, and I have opening statement studio coming up. And so I've been thinking quite a lot about the idea of the three things that every opening wants. Hey, Bill, good to see you. And here's what it is. So there are three things that you have to do and have to include in every single opening. And the first one is you have to include uh, teaching. I guess I'll just say it that way. You have to educate the jury. In fact, you have to do that twice. So when we're talking about the different parts of, of opening, you're going to be educating the jury in a couple different times in your um, opening statement. In addition to teaching, which is a particular skill set, you also have to tell a story. So there's storytelling, and there's a, a variety of stories that you're going to be telling in opening, not just one story. You might be surprised to learn. And in addition to storytelling, you also have to deal with resistance. So this is anything that the jury is going to struggle with, challenges to your case, so on and so forth. And you might be surprised that there's a couple of places that you have to do that. Now, here's why this is important. Because the nonverbal communication for all three of those things is different, not just the actual content, but the way that you are delivering those three types of of components of the opening has to change. And yet most of you stay in the same type of nonverbal communication when you are communicating to your jury, even though you should be functioning as teacher in one place, as storytelling in another place, and then how to deal with resistance in another. So I want to walk you through those three different parts of opening statement and talk about how the nonverbals change and, of course, how your, your content will change. So let's start with teaching. Teaching is going to happen two times in your opening. It's going to happen in what I call the educate the jury section. So that is the section of opening that you are going to give context to the jury about the story that is about to follow. Now, if if you've followed me for a while, you know that I'm really big on context, particularly in voir dire. So in voir dire, before we ask the jurors questions, we give them context in the form of context statements to let them know why we're going to ask what we're going to ask. And we do this so that they feel more comfortable uh, answering our questions. They know why we're asking, and it just makes a lot more sense to jurors across the board if we give them some context for why we're asking the question that we're wanting to ask. Now, in the same way, we also want to give context to the jurors in opening, not for what we're about to ask, but about what we're about to say. And I think this is important for a couple of reasons. One, 
is that given context constantly in any scenario makes the jurors feel smart. The last thing that you want to do is get to the point where you're going through your story and you're using terms and you're talking about things that the jury has no idea what you're talking about and you're assuming that they understand and they don't and they feel dumb and stupid. Okay, so context in the in terms of the education section that we start the, the opening with after our, our hook, of course, is really important to help the jurors feel smart and empowered. But the second thing I think many of you are missing is that there's this great persuasion technique that can happen when you first give context before you tell the story. As you've heard me talk about before, the context, the educate the jury section, is what should have happened. And then the story is what did happen. Now, if you do it in that order, the jurors then come up with their own explanation for why you are here, which is the fourth part component of the opening, why you're here. So that makes persuasion a done deal, meaning here's what should have happened, here's what did happen, jurors go, oh, I get it, totally. But most of you leave out the education section, and I think that's a huge, huge mistake. Now, I'm not gonna go into how to create the education section today. I've got a whole thing on my website if you want to go get it on how to build your opening step by step that will walk you through with video and templates, the whole thing. But my point is, is that you should include and educate the jury section. Hi, Paul. Thanks for joining. So let's go back to this idea of teaching or educating being one of the things that you have to have an opening. There's another place that you're going to teach an opening, and that is when you get to what I call the cause and effect section, or um, David Ball calls it the uh, damages section, uh, causation and damages section. Okay, so what, whatever you want to call it, that's the part in your opening you're also teaching, because now you're going to tell the jury about how the injury or the death happen. Now you're really going to draw the jury step by step to when the crash happened, that caused the neck to blah, blah, blah. And you're talking about all those things there. You've got a function in both of those settings and the educate the jury section for what should have happened. And in the cause and effect section on terms of how this created the injury or the death, you have to function as teacher. And here's what you have to understand about teaching is that when you are communicating as a teacher, you have to use both of the nonverbal sets that you've heard me talk about. You have to use the authoritative voice pattern and you have to use the palms curl down, right? So, or the voice curling down, palms down. If I was standing, I'd have weight over both feet. Right now I'm just seated with weight over both sit bones. And so what you do when you communicate from this place, from the authoritative stance, is you communicate, I know my shit. And that is what every student wants to feel from their teacher, right? They've got this. They know what they're talking about. And so when you're teaching, you're saying the heart has four chambers. Or when a doctor cuts, there are three things he must do before cutting into tissue. Notice how my voice is curling down, palms down. If I was standing, the stance would be um, weight over both feet. But that doesn't mean that you do your entire teaching or educating from authoritative persona. You also want to have the approachable persona, and that's where the palms are facing up, the head maybe is tilted a little bit. Notice how my voice has changed, it's curling up now. This is where you're gonna use uh, the approachable stance when you're saying things like, 
Now let me let me talk to you a little bit, or let me let me give you some background on heart surgery. You're gonna have to learn about. Notice how I'm inviting the jury to learn with me, so that I don't give my entire teaching section from here. So it's primarily authoritative communication with some approachable thrown in. And that's going to be true. You're giving a presentation in terms of the teaching section. Now, I say you're giving a presentation. And I want to throw out a caveat. This is not a time to be in speechy mode. In fact, there is never a time to be in speechy mode. Nobody likes listening to speeches. No one. This is a time when you are teaching that is different than giving a speech. And even when you're giving a speech, I don't want you to sound speechy. That's a whole other topic. You are there to be warm and inviting teachers. So basically, here's the rule of thumb when you're teaching. Be you, meaning conversational in tone, like I'm doing right now, with some polish. Good pausing, good gesturing, and using the appropriate nonverbal set, authoritative versus approachable, mostly authoritative with some approachable thrown in. So we definitely want to be conversational tone, not speechy tone, where you sound like you're giving a speech. All right, so you need to have a teaching, uh, two teaching parts in your opening, both in educate the jury before you go into the story and also in the cause and effect section, which is how did this happen and what, what actually crushed the bones, you know, the mechanism of injury basically and what the effect of that was on the person. Now, the second component or second thing that you have to have in every opening is you have to have some teaching in there, but then you have to have storytelling. And I think what people don't recognize in terms of the nonverbals is that storytelling and presenting are two absolutely different things. Absolutely different things. You're not presenting when you are telling a story. So here's where you can throw out all of the rules. If you've come to my seminars before and you've heard me talk about presentation skills, all that gets thrown out the window. I mean, not all of it, but most of it is thrown out the window because you are not presenting when you are telling a story. Now, before I talk about what I mean, let's talk about the two places that you tell stories in opening because there are two. There is a defendant story and there is a plaintiff story. And anybody want to make a guess of which one comes first? Go ahead and type to me in the comments. But I think most of you know that defendant story comes first, meaning the story of what the defendant did. At the beginning of our opening, we want to focus on what the defendant's conduct was and how it created the injury. Now, I, I say that. I don't want you to go into the story and all the doctor's appointments and all that stuff. That's later. We talk about that later. But when we're in fact, we talk about that in the cause and effect section. But the first story is about the defendant and the choices they made to hurt someone. And that's really important. And when you're telling that story, it's different than presenting, meaning you're not going to stand up there. Well, you are because many of you do, but I don't want you to stand up there and now use your authoritative and say, now the person was going down the street and then they were driving and then they turned left. No, 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 no. When we're talking about stories, we're talking about using props. We're talking about, you know, when you come to the opening statement studio, those of you who are coming in July or you come before, we're talking about you're getting on chairs and you're standing up and you are adopting the behavior of a character, which means you may draw your body in and start to whisper and use this kind of voice, or you may be big and use this really sarcastic voice when you're talking as the doctor. And you know, even as I'm talking about this, I know some of you are out there going, I could never do that. It's too dramatic. Bullshit. Bullshit. This is what it takes. I'm talking to those of you who want to win. And you know how I feel about winning. It is not the gold standard by any means. But let's be real. If we really want to get out there and do this right, 
we've got to go all in. You heard me talk about that a couple weeks ago. And so when we're talking about storytelling, you've got to tell a good story. Listen, if you have kids, you know this. They don't let you just get away with reading the kids' books and not using the different voices. And in fact, go back and start practicing. We do this in our seminars where you're using different voices and different tones and different volumes and you're becoming different characters because this is a whole other level of presenting and storytelling is not the same as teaching. And in fact, the, because you have both an opening, it really creates a nice engagement with the jurors because the energy changes when we're presenting information and then we tell a story that keeps jurors engaged because the energy keeps changing. You've heard me say before, or maybe you haven't, that every good presentation is a management of energy. And so that's what you're doing when you're bringing these different nonverbal styles to the courtroom is you're keeping jurors engaged by being teacher and then slowly morphing into storytelling and then back into teacher. You're constantly going back and forth. And that's actually really exciting to watch. Not that you should be entertaining. That's not what I'm suggesting that you're out there and being entertaining guy or gal, but that you must keep the jurors engaged because they get bored and they get bored fast. But not only that, when you actually fully embrace storytelling, what you're doing is showing the jury how important this is. You're not just kind of going, well, here's what happened. You're like, let me show you what happened. Let me bring you into the story so you can feel what this was like for the plaintiff. Which brings us to the second story, which is the plaintiff's story. So later in your opening, you're now gonna switch from telling the story of the defendant's conduct to the story of what life is like for the plaintiff today. That's really your damages section. I call it the plaintiff story, but it's it's not the part in the cause and effect we're talking about. Here's how this what this caused, and here's all the doctor's appointments, and here's how it was diagnosed, and all that goes in the cause and effect section. But now you're saying, and here's what the person is like today. And so you tell a story, and there you're also going to tell good storytelling techniques. You're going to you know, talk about how the person struggles to get out of this chair every day. And I want you to struggle. I want the jurors to see this. You have to make it come alive for them. And again, that's a whole different nonverbal set. So that's the second story that you tell. And of course, part of that story is also talking about what they were like before. I put those together. So the plaintiff's story is both now and what they were like before this happened. So the first thing you have to have in every opening is you have to teach the jury. You have to be good at teaching, which is using authoritative and some approachable, along with just being conversational in tone and warm and engaging. You have to have good storytelling. The third thing you have to have is you have to be able to deal with resistance. And dealing with resistance, in my mind, is there's, again, two sections in the opening for this as well, is dealing with the jurors, I call it the yeah but. So let's say that you've taught them about heart surgery and how you do it right. And then you tell the story about what the defendant did and how they did it wrong. And at the end of that section, they're like, oh my God, I know why you're here. I mean, you said it's supposed to be done this way. It actually was done that way. So they should be pretty much with you after that. But they may still have some lingering thoughts in their head like, yeah, but I mean, what if he didn't really mean to do it? Or yeah, but didn't the patient already have heart um, problems? You know, whatever it might be. And of course, your yeah buts are the things that your uh, the defense is going to bring up or even things that you're worried about. Maybe the defense won't bring it up, but you know you have to deal with it. So this is what I call the challenges section. David calls it the, David Ball calls it the undermining section. In fact, if you go and purchase my um, opening statement thing online, I still use David's terms. I haven't switched them over to my new terminology yet, so just know that. 
But this is where you deal with the challenges. And so here, you're kind of back to the presenting mode. But what I want to really caution you about here is that you're going to use a little bit more approachable than you might think. Because I really believe you need to frame, listen up now, this is important. You need to frame all of the challenges to your case, all of the yeah buts, all of the things that the jurors might be like wondering about in the jurors' inner monologue. Now, what I mean by that is when you say it out loud, it should sound like what is in their head because that will freak them out in a good way. That will make them feel like you know exactly what they're thinking and that makes you feel you seem smart, okay? So the way you do this, let's say that I'm going to go back to the case I use all the time. This is just a perfect case and it's actually outlined in my book. Um, so I know it really well, which is the case, the anesthesiology case. You may have heard me talk about that, where we have the anesthesiologist, uh, hospitals anesthesiologist molesting patients. And so in our teaching section, our education section, we talked about how the hospitals must report um, this type of behavior to the police. They must um, remove the person from uh, having access to patients and they must respond. And that might be looking at their policies or talking to the victims, whatever. You know, of course they didn't do any of these things. And so that was in our education, the jury section. When we got to the challenges section, what we did was we knew that the jury may be thinking or that the defense was going to bring up that the hospital didn't really have to call the police. And so instead of saying now, one of the things we wondered was, you know, whether the hospital had to call the police. Notice how that doesn't sound like anything that a juror would have in their head. <laughs> you can't deliver it that way. You have to say, so one of the things we wondered about was, does the hospital really have to call the police? Now notice how that's different. Now it sounds like something a juror would be thinking. So we wondered about that. I mean, it, and then maybe you can even go more what I call devil's advocate. I mean, if you're not sure the guy did it, it, isn't that kind of throwing him under the bus? I mean, seriously, throw some of the things in that the jury may be thinking. And then you answer the question. And if, from here, of course, you go to authoritative. Here's what we found. We talked to expert so-and-so, and he's going to tell you that hospitals, just like daycare centers or churches or schools, have a duty to report, even if they're not sure that the guy or gal is guilty. And notice that's all authoritative. But that first challenge, you have to communicate it like the juror is thinking it. And that's actually going to make this great connection between you and the jury because it's like you get what they're thinking. And they're like, yeah, I was thinking that's weird how he knew that. <laughs> so this is not a trick. It's not to manipulate. I'm just telling you, which is my job. That's what I do. How to connect with the jurors in front of you. You have to have three, these three things in opening and all of these things you do twice. So that's the teaching that's in the educate the jury section and also in the cause and effect section. You've got the storytelling. That's the defendant's story in terms of their conduct and how that caused this and the plaintiff's story, which is how are they today and how are they before? And then you have to deal with resistance, which is, Hey James, which is dealing with the challenges. And the second part where you deal with this is in the how money will help section. People go, well, how is that a challenges section? Here's how. Because even if you've done everything perfectly and they're totally 100% with you, and by the way, this is where a lot of you went, lose cases. Right here, right what I'm about to tell you right now. Even if they are totally with you, if you have not answered the question, how will money help, you will lose. Jurors have to have you deal with that. 
That's their last resistance. They're like, all right, I'm totally with you. I see how this, this guy did this thing. I don't get how money will help though. So that's the last hurdle you got to get them over. That place you also have to deal with resistance. And you can use the same method that I just talked about, which is now you might be wondering, how's money going to help? And notice how I say it in the inner monologue of what I think a juror might be thinking. Then you go ahead and you answer that. Not in detail. You'll talk about it in detail in closing, but you'll say in general, blah, blah, blah. And we'll show you over trial in more depth of how that, how that works. And we'll talk about it in detail in closing or whatever you want to say there. Don't go into a ton of depth there. So my folks, my peeps, that's the three things every opening must have. If you want to see it all in order and detail, go to our website under trial consulting and you can buy the opening package. You can also buy the opening and water package, which I highly recommend because as you know, constantly nailing the connection between the two. Um, so that will be on there for you if you want to do that. But what this really what I'm talking about here is you, you can buy that program and you can, and it's like a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks. I don't remember what it is, but, and you can learn how to actually create the words, but the words are such a little part of this. I highly recommend that you come to opening statement. We just have a few seats left. Um, and this is where you're going to learn the nonverbal stuff. I'm telling you, you can't learn the nonverbal stuff through Facebook. You can't learn it even if I give you a video, which we're, we're working on that. We're going to have a whole program for those of you. But you know what that video series is going to be and that membership program we were talking about? That's going to be for those of you who have come out to work with me and want to continue in the work. I mean, you've got to come out at some point if you want to get in this work. And that's going to be a support to you. It is not going to be the way to do this and, and be perfect at it. You've got to come and work with me one-on-one, -on -one, get a nonverbal snapshot of how you show up. I'm not saying that to sell my services. I'm saying that to those of you who are really interested in this work and are still hanging back and not making the decision to take the leap and cut, get your ass out here. Because I'm telling you, if you've been here before, you know this is life-changing. And maybe that's why you're not coming. Because you're worried that this is going to set off a chain of events. And I'm telling you right now, you should be worried because it will. You will not ever be able to be the same after you come out. Because we communicate who we are and we're going to mess with that. But in such a glorious, transformative way, you, you just will never have training like this anywhere else. I can absolutely say that because I've heard it from all y'all who've been here. So that's in July. Grab the last couple seats. Come out and see me. Uh, in addition, we've got a webinar tomorrow that's free. That's going to be on Zoom, so you actually have to register for that. Unlike Facebook Live, I think Christy's going to put the uh, registration in the links right now. That's the permission principle. Three ways to increase permission with jurors. You do not want to miss that. It is going to be a good one. That's tomorrow at 11 a.m. PDT Pacific Daylight Time. Is that what that's, that, that DS4? Are we still in that? Anyways, and if you haven't um, subscribed to our podcast yet from Hostage Hero, do that. There's good stuff going on on there. Go on uh, iTunes or Spotify. Give us a review. I would really, really appreciate that. If you're out there today and you enjoyed uh, the Facebook Live, give me a like or a love or say hi. Um, if there's any questions, this is a great time to ask. If you have questions about opening, I'm happy to stay on for a little bit and answer any questions. You know, I see James on here, and I know James is criminal defense, and I've been working with a um, criminal uh, case right now. I don't work many criminal cases. Mostly I work with plaintiffs, um, but I do work with criminal defense when it, when it uh, occurs, and I've got a really great client up here who always calls me when he's got a case going. That makes sense. 
And so he was asking about, you know, the way that I do things. And he said, you know, how do you, how does this work for criminal? And I said, well, I think criminal cases also have to have an educate the jury situation. Like in this case, it's a case of self-defense. The jury needs to be educated on what self-defense is and what some of those terms are and what's allowed and what's not allowed. It gets a little tricky in terms of talking about the law, but I do believe there is a way to teach the jury and empower them in terms of what their rights are and what all of our rights are as citizens when it comes to, for example, in this case, self-defense. Um, and so one of the things I thought was interesting is, you know, if you followed um, Keith Mitnick and Don't Eat the Bruises, where he talks about in his quote-unquote undermining or challenges section, instead of doing the David Ball or the Sorry Delamont method, he does the let me put things in context, right? Now, before I sit down, I assume you're going to hear some of these things. And so, you know, let me put them in context. And so I thought for all my criminal defense attorneys, it would be nice uh, to start your opening with that because you go second in most cases. Some, some jurisdictions you go first. But in most cases, you go second, unlike our plaintiffs who get to go first. And so all of this stuff has already come out. And so it might be nice for you to stand up and start your opening with. Now, you've heard a lot of what the prosecution has said. And I do not fear the truth. But the truth needs to be in context, so allow me to put some things in context. First, let's talk about self-defense and what rights we have as citizens, you know, or whatever. You go into your educate the jury section. But I thought that kind of put it in context might be helpful for you, those of you, any of you who go second, because we do have kind of that benefit of going first, most of us. And I know our criminal defense attorneys don't, don't always have that. All right, I don't see any questions here. I also don't see any likes or loves, so it would be nice if I got some of those, but um, good to be with you. I'm looking forward to taking next week off. Happy 4th to all of you out there, and I'll be back on Facebook two weeks from today. Uh, get to opening statement. Overcome your fear. I'm not going to eat you alive. It, you'll actually love it. It's a super lot of fun. Get on there. Get the seat. Do it now. All right. Lovely talking with you guys. Talk soon. That's it for this episode of From Hostage to Hero. But head to our website, sorrydlm.com, for other must-have resources from Sorry Delamart. Read the transcript of this podcast, watch trial tip videos, or download your free copy of Sorry's article, Why Jurors Hate the Hobby Question. We're glad you joined us today. And until next time, remember that to lead a hostage to freedom, you must first free yourself.